from NPR News in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Ron Elving on Congress leaving town and former President Donald Trump's multiplying criminal charges. Also, Russia looks to Africa. Does Africa like that? The Philippine Women's World Cup team with roots in the USA. Carla Ortiz, an artist whose work explodes on screen in Marvel movies, on the threat many artists feel from artificial intelligence coming into film work. Because it's so shiny and it's so novel, a lot of folks are saying, hey, that's just progress, but it's basically fueled by the proceeds of theft. First, our newscast at Saturday, July 29, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Former President Donald Trump could be facing a third federal indictment stemming from a special counsel investigation into the January 6th insurrection. In the meantime, Trump is facing new charges into his alleged mishandling of classified documents. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports Trump is now facing a total of 40 criminal counts in that case. One charge is for his alleged refusal to return a military plan about Iran that Trump showed to aides at his New Jersey golf club, even though he said it was a secret. And there are two new charges of obstruction for allegedly cooking up a plan to destroy surveillance footage of boxes being moved at his Florida resort Mar-a-Lago. Trump's campaign says this is part of a, quote, desperate attempt by the Justice Department to harass him and the people around him. NPR's Carrie Johnson reporting. The Biden administration says it's exploring options for cooling requirements in public housing. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports many people are struggling to pay for air conditioners, even as extreme heat becomes more common. Most public housing is decades old, built before central air, and a utility allowance for residents only covers heat, not air conditioning. In Texas, State Representative Diego Bernal has tried for two years to get air conditioning in federally subsidized housing, but he's faced pushback from cash-strapped housing agencies who say they have no money to make it happen. I get that. I do. I also don't care. It is unsafe and inhumane to expect people to live without air conditioning. Housing agencies are creating more cooling centers in their buildings and educating residents on how to identify heat-related illness and keep each other safe. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Washington. The Biden administration is proposing new rules that would require trucks and SUVs to improve their efficiency by 2032. As NPR's Camila Dominowski reports, the proposal focuses on gas-powered cars, but also would pair with other policies that promote electric vehicles. Earlier in the year, the EPA proposed rules to promote electric vehicles that environmental groups called ambitious and automakers called unrealistic. Now, this proposal focuses on vehicle fuel economy, miles per gallon of gas and diesel-powered vehicles. It's sort of a sibling regulation to the EPA plan, and this time around, environmental groups say it's not ambitious enough. The proposed standards would require cars to get more efficient every year, and trucks and SUVs to improve twice as fast. That's because small cars these days tend to get good mileage, while popular big vehicles have, as regulators put it, much more room to improve. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
Vice President Kamala Harris is set to address the 114th convention of the NAACP in Boston today. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports that the country's first black vice president is headlining the annual meeting of the country's oldest and largest civil rights organization. Harris will take the stage at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center for what's billed as an armchair conversation with the NAACP's board chairman. Harris also headlined last year's convention in Atlantic City, where she focused on the issues of gun violence, abortion access, and voting rights. The list of high-profile speakers continues through the weekend, with New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft and rapper Meek Mill addressing the convention together tomorrow. The convention wraps up Tuesday night, with former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton scheduled to speak. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The Cape and Islands District Attorney says he plans to investigate the drop-off of dozens of South American migrants on Martha's Vineyard last year. The Boston Globe reports that Rob Galloboys is looking into Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's role in chartering the flights. DeSantis is expected to travel to Cape Cod today to attend a fundraiser for his 2024 Republican presidential campaign. The parents of a Westford teenager who died from brutal weather conditions on a hike are organizing another event in her memory. Emily's Hike to Save a Life will be held this afternoon across several trails in New Hampshire. The fundraiser will support hiking safety and access. Emily Satello died on a hike up Mount Lafayette last November, days before her 20th birthday. She was aiming to summit all 48 peaks in New Hampshire taller than 4,000 feet. You should prepare for the possibility of some severe weather this afternoon. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce has a look at your forecast for today. Heat advisories remain in effect. Heat index values in the mid-90s again today. If we hit 90 in Boston, that'll be the third day in a row 90-plus, making this heat wave official. Chance of a shower or downpour this morning and then scattered late afternoon and evening thunderstorms. Some storms could become severe with damaging wind gusts, torrential downpours, lightning, and hail. If you have outdoor plans today, especially have a backup plan to seek shelter indoors should you need to. That does bring relief, though. Tomorrow, really pleasant, less humid air, high 75 to 80 with a blend of sun and clouds. It's 78 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Good morning, and thank you for being with us. Congress is in recess. Don't they have work to do? Questions abound about if and when that third indictment of former President Donald Trump will be handed down. NPR senior Washington editor and correspondent Ron Elvin joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. Let me put it this directly. Is it irresponsible for Congress to leave town with so much left to do in the appropriations process to avoid a government shutdown. You know, the August recess is not in the Constitution, Scott, but uh, it might as well be as far as Congress is concerned. It was 98 and humid here yesterday. You have to wonder how Congress met in the summer at all before air conditioning. But the truth is the spending bills do not suffer for lack of time, but for a lack of common purpose. In the Senate, they've had bipartisan cooperation. They've gotten all 12 spending bills ready for floor debate. In the House, not so much. 
The House's hardcore conservatives want some of these must-pass bills to become vehicles for social policy. Uh, That's not an original idea. It has happened before, but in this case, they want to use them for weapons for the culture wars. These provisions will not pass the Senate, so some sort of compromise will be needed in September, or a government shutdown will loom once again. And on the Senate side, I have to ask you uh, about uh, an alarming moment. Uh, Senator Mitch McConnell... uh, abruptly stop speaking during a news conference. What are the implications here? He, it was he later came back and said he was to fine. To be sure. Yeah. Yes, he came back, said he was fine. But it was an eerie moment, to be sure, disturbing, and the more so, the more times you watched it. Uh, we know McConnell has had a couple of falls this year, one concussion, three weeks of rehab. We know he says he's fine. His office says he's fine. He's been the Republican leader, majority or minority, back to 2007, longer than anyone in history on the Republican side. And like him or not, he's been among the most effective leaders either party has had in a long time. He's got a better shot at holding Republicans together and negotiating with the Democrats than most anyone who might replace him. But uncertainty about leadership is never good. And we see that on the House side as well. Speaker McCarthy has spent the last week talking about impeaching President Biden, talking about expunging former President Trump's two impeachments. Yes, that would please the former president, and it would please his most ardent supporters in the House. And yes, McCarthy needs those same House members to remain as Speaker. But I can imagine him behaving quite differently if he had a larger majority to work with in getting the necessary business of Congress done. And, of course, let me ask you about the um, possible repercussions of a likely third indictment, indictment of Donald Trump. Uh, Mr. Trump said on social media his attorneys met with federal prosecutors Thursday at the Justice Department. We don't know exactly what went on in that meeting, but it may have bought Trump and his defense team a little more time in the indictment process related to the January 6th insurrection. But what we got instead was a new superseding indictment in the Mar-a-Lago documents case down in Florida. Uh, It's important there because this includes a charge that Trump ordered recordings from a surveillance camera to be deleted. Now, if proven, that would be willful destruction of evidence, Mm -hmm. obstruction of justice, and it also speaks to Trump's awareness that his possession and concealment of the documents was unlawful. That could be crucial at trial. I have to ask you some striking new numbers, good numbers about the economy this week. What do they mean in people's everyday lives? Uh, What's going on in the economy is that it's growing, and inflation is moderating. The economy grew 2.4% second quarter, top of 2% of the first quarter. Uh, Those aren't barn burner numbers, but they're not the recession so many of us were expecting. Uh, We also learned yesterday that consumer prices this past month were up a relatively mild 3%, slowest inflation in almost two years, and it carried with it some indications that the current trend would continue. And you know, Scott, consumers are beginning to feel it as well. Some of the consumer confidence numbers we've seen lately are the best in quite a while. NPR's Ron Elvin, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. Well, the war in Ukraine has united the West in condemnation of Russia and support for Ukraine, the position of much of the rest of the world, appears less certain. That was in evidence in St. Petersburg over the past couple of days where President Vladimir Putin hosted leaders from Africa for a summit. NPR's Charles Maines joins us now from Moscow. Thanks for being with us, Charles. Good morning. And what was Moscow hoping to achieve? Well, you know, Russia has been focusing increasingly on Africa in recent years, uh, almost trying to reassert influence it once had under the Soviet Union. 
you know, sometimes it can feel like a replay of the big power politics of the Cold War. And that trend has really picked up even more as Russia has faced Western condemnation over its actions in Ukraine. Uh, so events like this one, which is billed as the Russia-Africa summit, allow Moscow to show that it has not isolated, as the West claims, and that Russia still has plenty of friends in the rest of the world. And it's why we saw President uh, Vladimir Putin really fed his audience. Uh, Putin hosted in his home city, the beautiful St. Petersburg, and he made a pitch that he does often these days, that power had shifted away from the U.S. and Europe to what he calls a multipolar world, one where not only Russia, but Africa will play a major role, whether the West likes it or not. So here Putin, speaking Friday, tells the audience that in front of our very eyes, Africa is growing into a major political and economic power, and the rest of the world will have to accept what he calls that objective reality. Chris Charles, the summit takes place just as Russia has decided not to uh, renew that UN-backed grain deal that delivered a lot of food to Africa. Did Putin try and overcome doubts about that? Well, Putin clearly came in looking to appease critics of Russia's exit from the grain deal. On day one of the summit, he announced Russia expected a record harvest with more than enough reserves to make up for lost Ukrainian exports to the African continent. Uh, moreover, he said Russia would provide tens of thousands of tons of grain for free to several African countries. The next day, it was we're canceling some $23 billion in debt to African nations. And yet, uh, this Russian largesse kind of bumps up against economic reality. You know, the West provides far more trade and aid to Africa. Also left unsaid here is that Russia's subsequent blockade and nearly daily bombing of Ukrainian grain facilities has led to a spike in food prices globally. And, and for that reason, perhaps it was unsurprising to see several of the African guests uh, press Putin, as they have in the past, uh, to find a negotiated settlement to end the war. What other ways is Russia trying to draw in allies from Africa? Well, you know, earlier we talked about the Cold War with the U.S. and the Soviet Union competing in Africa with these competing political ideologies. And today there's kind of a new twist on that. You know, Putin seeks to find common cause with potential allies over what Russia calls traditional family values, in other words, conservatism. And they've really grafted that on really as an added front to this wider war with the West. So, for example, we saw Russian Orthodox patriarch Kirill on stage in St. Petersburg denouncing same-sex marriages as hedonistic uh, and approved by, by the West, but not in Russia, and he implied in large parts of Africa. Uh, meanwhile, military aid and weapons also hold their lure. Uh, one of the more popular stands at the summit involved a new generation weapons. Uh, let's not forget the Soviet-made Kalashnikov machine gun is the continent's weapon of choice. Um, there were also indications that the leader of the Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, was in St. Petersburg uh, to meet with some African delegates on the sidelines. You know, if true, it suggests that the Kremlin has, in some fashion, plans to retain Wagner services to countries in Africa as Moscow seeks to develop and deepen ties on the continent. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thanks so much. Thank you. This may be the most scorching month in the most scalding summer of what may become the hottest year in recorded history. From Arizona, where it's been above 110 degrees Fahrenheit every day for a month, to Sardinia, which hit 118 this week, to Xinjiang, China, where the temperature soared to 126. Felt a little mournful then to turn on summer playlists and hear lyrics like, Summer breeze makes me feel fine, and summer's here, and the time is right for dancing in the street. This summer, these past few summers really, have meant weeks of swelter, smoke, wildfires, and peril 
across much of the hemisphere. It was 107 degrees Fahrenheit in Rome last week. The Italian health ministry put 23 cities under red alert and cautioned people not to walk outside and to avoid wine and coffee. Too hot in Italy to stroll, enjoy a glass of suave or sip an espresso. Next, they'll say, stop boiling pasta. 170 million people in America were under heat alerts this week. The National Weather Service warns, take the heat seriously and avoid time outdoors. Isn't being outdoors the beauty of summer? For most of my life, summer's been a time to shuck off all the layers of winter cold and gloom to feel warmth and sunlight. School is out, vacations are planned, we can go coatless, feel carefree, dawdle, travel, and play. But this summer in America, many outdoor shows, concerts, and festivals have been canceled, and sporting events postponed because of unsafe heat and wildfire smoke in the skies. How many families have avoided picnics, camping trips, or games of catch in the yard because it's just too darn hot? The temperature of the water in Manatee Bay at Everglades National Park in Florida has been 101.1. The heat of ocean water, water, may be too dangerous for fish to survive. This excruciating heat driven by human activity can be dangerous for every living creature as well as the plants that bear the fruits and vegetables we need to survive. For humans, the heat is especially hazardous for seniors, children, and people who are unsheltered. Red alerts, heat emergencies, wildfires, and temperatures in triple digits become the new signs of summer. And will that make summer, as my friends and I used to dream about it through frigid and forbidding Chicago winters, now seem as season to fear. And you're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR on this Saturday morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. Coming up in about 20 minutes, national parks and hiking trail networks are facing dual pressures, crowds and changing weather. You'll get the story on preservationists in New Hampshire painstakingly restoring one such trail. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cape Playhouse in Dennis Village. Now playing George and Ira Gershwin's An American in Paris. Music, dance, and romance. Tickets at capeplayhouse.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. Authorities in Seattle say they're investigating a shooting at a grocery store last night that left at least five people injured. Police say the incident took place during a community outreach event and that dozens of bullets were fired. Many parts of the United States remain in the grips of a sweltering heat wave. Forecasters say excessive heat warnings and advisories will remain in effect for tens of millions of people through tomorrow. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the U.S. is making progress toward establishing a multinational peacekeeping force in Haiti. The Biden administration says it's concerned about increasing gang violence and insecurity in the Haitian capital. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Abortion rights advocates are beginning to see Florida as a potential foothold for access in the South. Right now, abortion is legal up to 15 weeks, while the state's new six-week abortion ban is on hold. But with so much at stake, activists on both sides of the issue are working to change abortion rights in the Florida Constitution. WFSU's Regan McCarthy has the story. A small group of advocates is gathered outside Florida's historic capital. A day of thunderstorms has dampened their plans for a rally. But Trish Brown says a bit of rain has never dampened her resolve. As long as I have breath in my body, I'm going to continue to um, fight for freedom and liberation. And I'm going to always continue to fight for being able to have control over my own body. Brown heads a local advocacy organization. Today, she's hoping to raise awareness about an amendment that protects access to abortion until the point of viability. If enough people sign on, the measure could be on the ballot in 2024. It's a movement Brown thinks could win. We wouldn't be out here fighting the way we are if we didn't believe in what we're fighting for. That fight is happening all over Florida. In Orlando, 1,300 people signed on to the effort at an indie rock concert. In Clearwater, a woman brought petitions to her choir practice. And in Naples, another woman sought support from her book club. What we're seeing is that the volunteer component of this is absolutely massive and is going to garner us hundreds of thousands of petitions. Lauren Brinzel is the campaign director for Floridians Protecting Freedom, the group leading the push for the amendment. The campaign hopes to gather about a million signatures. That's more than the nearly 892,000 verified signatures needed to make the ballot. So far, organizers say they've collected almost half a million. Brinzel says the grassroots aspect of the campaign means something. It says that people are angry about political interference in their decisions about health care. The movement isn't all grassroots. Floridians Protecting Freedom is getting help from groups like the ACLU and Planned Parenthood. More national support is expected once the measure qualifies for the ballot. Then it'll take support from 60% of the voters to change the state constitution. Sarah Standiford is National Campaigns Director with the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. She thinks the proposal will clear that threshold. That's clear from poll after poll. It's clear that the last time a question about abortion access was on the ballot, Floridians voted for the freedom to make private health care decisions without governmental intrusion. Standiford is talking about a proposed amendment defeated in 2012 that would have specified Florida's constitution couldn't protect abortion. But how voters feel is only one factor organizers considered when launching this campaign. They also considered the amendment process and Florida's regional importance. It's one of the only remaining southeastern states that allows abortion after six weeks. As now 20 states or so have enacted bans of some kind, access to abortion in Florida is particularly important. But not all Floridians feel that way. A proposed amendment to block abortion access in most cases is also moving forward. 
So far, state data shows about 16,000 people have signed petitions for that amendment. Mark Mink is heading the effort. He says he thinks he has a lot in common with people fighting to protect abortion access. We both want to add a new section to Article 1, which is where basic rights are being listed. We both have our discontentment with the Florida legislature and the actions taken. Mink, who was adopted, says that while the abortion landscape has changed significantly since 2018 when he started working on this initiative, his goal of protecting what he calls unborn life hasn't. It's something he thinks belongs in the state constitution. I want the opportunity to make that case in the court of public opinion and then let the chips fall where they fall. If we fail and we were not approved, at least we spoke on behalf of preborn human lives who can't speak for themselves. Mink acknowledges his amendment campaign isn't moving forward as quickly. He thinks in part that's because the repeal of Roe v. Wade energized the people in support of abortion access, while he says the people who would usually support his campaign are still high-fiving each other over the success of the repeal. Mink says the odds of his amendment passing may be low, but he's glad there's a chance for the debate. For NPR News, I'm Regan McCarthy in Tallahassee. Protests that swept across France over the police killing of a young man of North African descent are over, but root causes still simmer. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley visited the Paris suburb where the unrest began and reports there are efforts to try to help residents find some relief, if only for the summer. Not far from where cars were torched and buildings set on fire after 17-year-old Nael Merzouk was killed by a policeman at a traffic stop, children in Nanterre now glide down water slides and jump on trampolines. A giant astroturf area known as La Plage, or the beach, has been set up for the summer by the city. Mothers Yusra and Sarah Gabi watch their children from Shay's lounge chairs under the shade of beach umbrellas. The kids are having fun, they say. We're lucky Nanterre does this. It's great, especially if you can't get away for vacation. The cousins say the riots took place literally under their windows. We couldn't sleep and the tear gas drifted through our open windows. Yosra Gabi says there are definitely some racist police, but she also blames the young rioters. I understand their anger, but not the way they expressed it. They destroyed their own community, like the stores where their parents shop, their neighbors' cars. The two Muslim women who are veiled and wear long robes can't go to the pool next door because body-covering swimwear is not permitted in French public swimming pools. Two other Nanterre mothers who aren't veiled also say both sides bear responsibility. There are decent cops, but there's also racial profiling, says Carole Bulgrun, whose husband is of Algerian descent. My son has been stopped by the police because of his looks, and they've made racist comments like, we don't believe a little Arab like you isn't carrying pot. Miriam Durand, who sports a platinum blonde page boy, smokes as she watches her grandchildren play. She says another problem is that France is becoming too much like America. Who gives the police the right to shoot someone at point-blank range, she asks angrily. Where do they think they are? This is France, not the U.S. People here say the mayor of Nanterre is a good man and the city does a lot for its residents, though some wonder if citizens could be held more accountable in return. 
Like the majority of French people, 63-year-old Marie-Paul Mansour is white and Catholic. She wears a crucifix around her neck. Mansour says she's lived in Nanterre for 35 years and raised a family in public housing. She says it's more complicated than just racism. It's because of the concentration of people from different backgrounds and cultures living together in what we could call ghettos. And they're not integrated either. France is failing to integrate the second generation. President Emmanuel Macron spoke this week for the first time since the riots. While he admitted that for decades France had let problems fester in the same neighborhoods, he said the main lesson of it all is that France must restore authority. We need order, said Macron. Several police officers have been arrested for unprovoked violence, including the one who shot Merzouk. But France is polarized over whether out-of-control use or systemic police racism is to blame. A kind of block party is underway in the neighborhood where Merzouk lived. We're surrounded by housing projects and a lot of concrete. But the whole neighborhood has come out. There's all kinds of stands for the kids. There's board games. There's drawing. There's graffiti lessons. D'accord. Toute la peinture, c'est que sur le mur. The graffiti class is taught by Mesh, a professional who only wants to go by his artistic name. Mesh is white and has lived in Nanterre his whole life. He says the police are the main cause of the riots. People uh, are angry and of course they make some riots. For me it's obvious. Mesh's specialty is letters. He says his graffiti has a distinct message since the murder of a 17-year-old resident of Nanterre. I say la police too. The police kill. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Nanterre. The Filipino women's soccer team scored a huge upset in its first World Cup ever, defeating the host country New Zealand, one to nothing this week. But the story of how that team was formed is also pretty intriguing. It turns out that 18 of the 23 players in their squad are actually born in America, only one in the Philippines. Henry Bushnell recently reported on how the team came to be for Yahoo Sports, and he joins us from Auckland, New Zealand. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. Why and how so many players from the U.S.? Soccer just isn't that big a sport in the Philippines where, you know, basketball is by far the dominant uh, team sport there. But in in 2012, the Philippines women's national soccer team came to the U.S. Uh, They were invited to a one-off tournament, and they decided to host a a tryout or just like a, a scouting camp. You know, obviously there are four plus million uh, Filipino Americans. And with the help of two guys who were born in the Philippines and had come to the U.S. and loved soccer, uh, they started just finding players throughout the U.S., the majority of them from California, and kind of built this this pipeline of American-born players. How did they recruit a team? Yeah, they began just online on message boards. There would be random people who would talk about, you know, potential prospects for the team that were that were either based in the U.S. or had grown up in the U.S. And then when it became a more official enterprise in, in 2012, or at least a semi-official enterprise, these two guys, Mark Manguni and, and Butchie Impolito, what they began with was, was college rosters. You know, a college soccer team has its roster listed online, and they would look at the faces and look at the names and see if any of them looked or sounded like they might be Filipino, if there was a player. 
then they'd give the coach a call to try to verify that the player was Filipino. Or sometimes, whether it was through Facebook or Instagram, they'd contact the player directly, just sending a message. And some, a lot of times they wouldn't get responses. But over the years, as people heard about who the, uh, who the Philippines women's national team was and that there, were, that there were opportunities for players with Filipino heritage, they started jumping at that chance and then even being eager to initiate that conversation about potentially joining the team uh, themselves. Hmm. I mean, I think we can all think of the occasional Olympic athlete, figure skater, downhill skier, something like that, who represents the country of their ancestry but happens to have been born in or at least substantially grown up in the United States. But, but boy, this is a whole team. This is 18 out of 23 players. I don't think anybody at the Philippines Football Federation ever planned it to be this way. And in talking to some of the people who were involved in the construction of the team, the thought, I think, was always to have a mix of homegrown players and U.S. players. But there's just such a women's soccer culture and girls' soccer culture here in the U.S. that over time, they realized the difference in the quality of the player from between the homegrown players and the players who are brought up in the U.S. is just is pretty stark. You know, they just the coaches have adopted a mentality where, you know, the best 23 players are going to make this team. Who should we watch on this team? Serena Bolden, I think, is the is the star. She's from uh, she was born in Northern California, went to Loyola Marymount. She's the one who scored the goal against New Zealand. Um, she's a really active forward, pr- probably the biggest name. And the goalie, Olivia Davies McDaniel, had an outstanding performance against New Zealand, made an incredible save in the second half to preserve the win, also from California. They were kind of the two heroes of the New Zealand win, and we'll, we'll definitely both have major roles to play in their group finale against Norway. So can the Philippine national women's team defeat Norway on Sunday? I don't know that they can defeat them. I think that's a pretty, uh, a pretty tough task. The good news for them is that they might only need a draw to get through. So I think what you're probably going to end up seeing, it's going to be a pretty uh, lopsided game. But can the Philippines sneak out with maybe a, a 0-0 or a 1-1 draw? I wouldn't put it past them at this point after seeing uh, their first two games here. Kind of hard not to root for them, isn't it? Absolutely. Even as a, even as a journalist, I think I can admit that. Henry Bushnell of Yahoo Sports, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Intense rainfall in the Northeast in recent weeks has wiped out roads and bridges. The storms have also taken a toll on hiking trails. Many were already under pressure from a surge in use. New Hampshire Public Radio's Todd Todd Bookman takes us to the White Mountains, where efforts are underway to preserve a popular trail. Most days, you can pull into the Franconia Ridge Trailhead parking lot, look up and see alpine peaks well above treeline. But not this day, with all the haze in the air. That's the wildfire smoke from Canada, yeah. Really wild. This is Alex DeLucia. He's with the Appalachian Mountain Club. It's one of the many groups that cares for and about the White Mountains. This national forest draws millions of visitors annually to hike, fish, ski, and camp. The Franconia Loop is one of its calling cards. The Franconia Loop Trail is rated some like, best loop hike in the country or 
It's been featured in Backpacker magazine. I mean, this, it is phenomenal. The trail was established 200 years ago, but beginning with indigenous people, humans have been visiting these woods for thousands of years. Today, the loop is around nine miles in total. It crosses streams and climbs peaks, and with no smoke, offers views for days. Now, on a busy weekend, as many as a thousand hikers come here. Delucia says they leave their mark. You know, and then we add, you know, the climate-related, you know, weather impacts that are more frequent and more severe, and uh, it's like this perfect storm in the whites that we're trying to constantly battle. <laughs> Trail systems and national parks around the country are facing these same dual pressures, crowds and changing weather. Visits to national parks have doubled in the past 50 years to more than 300 million people annually. The results are evident here, heading up the ridge, exposed rocks in the middle of the path, muddy sections, and washouts from recent storms. It had water running down the middle of it and kind of washing away material. This is Annie Dumas. She's on one of the trail crews that's spending the next four summers rebuilding every foot of this hillside. The federal government, along with private foundations, the World Trails Network, and the AMC, are spending about $1.8 million to make this path more resilient. So we are both widening the trail and hardening the trail. Dumas is pounding crushed stone with a hammer. She's laying in a wider, more gradual set of stone stairs than what was here before. Trail design and building is evolving. It has to. Long, long gone are the days of just like rolling rocks around in the woods for fun. It's like this, this is trade work now. Other stretches of this trail are being completely repositioned to follow natural contours. This helps with drainage. Back in the day, trails were often about getting from the base to the top as fast as possible. But then they become rivers during a big storm. Sustainable trails tend to be longer because they switch back and forth a lot. They don't shoot straight up the mountain. With no intervention, the trail will continue to deteriorate, meaning people will head off trail, stomping on plants to get up the mountain. Experts from the Forest Service say they need to protect this delicate ecosystem. Like it has all summer, this day hike didn't escape without a passing thunderstorm. A lot of feet have tread this path. As the dirt turns to mud, Annie Dumas doesn't flinch. She's down on all fours, positioning stones one by one. So it feels really cool to be hopefully like just investing a lot of my own energy and my crewmates energy into something that'll last that long. It's cool. Not every trail is lucky enough to have caretakers like Dumas. There's no pile of money for this kind of work. It takes people to recognize the threat and act to preserve the trail's beauty. For NPR News, I'm Todd Bookman in the White Mountains. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Vice President Kamala Harris is scheduled to deliver the keynote address today at the NAACP convention in Boston. Governor Maura Healey plans to attend several events at the convention this weekend. On the MBTA, the Green Line's B branch is open again today after a two-week closure for track work. Meanwhile, starting today and for the next 12 days to accommodate crews working on the demolition of the government center garage, Orange Line trains are skipping Haymarket Station. Green Line trains are suspended between North Station and Government Center. On-demand accessibility vans are available. It is 78 degrees in Boston. A heat advisory is in effect through this evening. A flood watch takes effect at 11 this morning. 
Some isolated showers this morning, then some scattered showers and thunderstorms likely this afternoon and this evening. Today's high around 90 degrees. Tomorrow, a mostly sunny Sunday, less humid, a high around 80. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by View Boston, now open. A new experience atop the Prue with three stories of 360-degree panoramic views, featuring food and drinks and opportunities to discover hidden gems of Boston and snap a selfie on the outdoor roof deck. Tickets at viewboston.com. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Maisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The United Methodist Church, one of the largest Protestant groups in the U.S., is less united than it once was. The denomination has lost about 20% of its congregations in recent years. Many are leaving over the church's stance on LGBTQ people. Here's NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose. Mainline Protestants, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Presbyterians, have all splintered over sexuality for decades. Now, the time has come for Methodists. Back in 2019, the United Methodist Church voted to keep prohibitions on LGBTQ clergy and same-sex weddings. But then, a number of more progressive church leaders, bishops and others, said they would no longer enforce those rules. Now, more conservative congregations are departing because of that failure to uphold the church's stated belief that, quote, homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. One that wants to leave because of that lack of enforcement is the Fount Church in Orange County, California. It's currently a United Methodist congregation with about 50 members. Well, the banner over here, come thou fount of every blessing. That's where we get our name. Glenn Hayworth is lead pastor. The fount is Jesus, of course, not us. So uh, when we say we're the fount church, we're referring to our Lord and not ourselves. Hayworth is a lifelong United Methodist, but he says his denomination in general, and in particular the local geographic region, which is called Annual Conference, have been drifting for years from what he calls traditional biblical teachings on morality. Most recent and probably most prominent is the differences of opinion we have with regard to homosexuality, marriage in general, the sexual ethic also in general. And we believe, as do many Christians, that the Bible is very specific in that teaching, whereas this annual conference has decided that uh, that's not important. 
Across the denomination, congregations are allowed to disaffiliate if they pay two years' worth of church dues and fund their pension obligations. But here in Southern California, the local annual conference says churches have to also pay 50 cents on the dollar if they want to keep their property. It says it needs the money to fund new United Methodist Ministries. The Fount property was just assessed at $6 million. Hayworth says that's far more than his nearly 60-year-old congregation can afford. In 1964, this property didn't cost $6 million, and to pay $3 million now to the annual conference with 50 members is impossible. Hayworth says he'll try to negotiate a lower price, but he's not hopeful. Which means that the Fount's only options may be walking away from their building or taking the annual conference to civil court. He thinks that might be ultimately worth doing over LGBTQ clergy and same-sex marriage. It hasn't been healthy for the denomination to be at odds with each other over this issue. Grant Hagia is president of the Methodist Seminary here in Southern California, Claremont School of Theology. The retired bishop says he understands the Fount's dissatisfaction, but he says what's really at stake here is justice, something he believes even a medieval theologian could support. Aquinas would say that if a law is unjust, it's not a law. Laws are human-made, and they can be wrong, immoral. And we believe that this is true of this particular uh, case of exclusion. This is a Hammond organ and our drum set. Kimberly Scott became the new pastor in early July at the 250-member Grace United Methodist Church in South Los Angeles. We have four different choirs and four different groups that sing one each Sunday throughout the month. Scott says, as a queer woman, she's grateful for the bishops and church leaders who are willing to break the rules so she can live out her call to ministry. She says that those rules continue to exist at all is heartbreaking. Yet, she's decided to stay and fight. My family were Methodists in the South. So we were Methodists when Methodists were okay with slavery, right? And my family never left. And so I was like, I can't leave over this. If my grandparents stayed, then I can stay through this to see this to the end. That end, Scott believes, will eventually be an official change to the rules when the United Methodist Church gathers for its general conference next year. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Los Angeles. Marvel's latest big production wrapped up this week on Disney Plus, Secret Invasion. Nick Fury, Samuel L. Jackson's character, uncovers a plot where shape-shifting aliens impersonate high-ranking officials across the globe. Oh, that again? But close viewers recognize something unsettling about the series. Its intro sequence used artificial intelligence to animate images. The studio said using AI simply affirmed the film's theme, who's really who. Now, actors are on strike now in part because they fear that AI might take away acting jobs. But the art world is already contending against those tools. Carla Ortiz, who has worked on massive Marvel properties, including Guardians of the Galaxy, Loki, Black Panther, and Doctor Strange, testified this month in front of a Senate committee on AI and intellectual property. She joins us now from San Francisco. Ms. Ortiz, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. You're an illustrator and concept artist. What concerns you? Well, we are seeing generative AI models encroach almost every space in our industry. These technologies are currently replacing jobs 
But to add a level of complexity to it, they're replacing jobs using our work as training data. It's not a hypothetical for us. It's happening right now. It's existential for us, really. From what you've seen, uh, what, what is AI doing? How does it how does it exploit your the images that you have created? For an AI model to be able to generate imagery that says, you know, oil painting in the style of Carla Ortiz, it still needs to know what an oil painting is. So it'll be trained upon huge amounts of numbers of oil paintings from artists all around the world, throughout history and through the present. And it also needs to know what my work looks like. There's a model, um, Stability AI, that utilizes a large data set called Lion. It contains 5.8 billion text and image data pairs. And Lion is open for anyone to see. And that's how I found out the entire body of my fine art work to be in those data sets. And it's shocking. It's shocking to see. It took away my ability to consent to being a part of this technology. They took away my credit. No one will know that my work powered those images mm -hmm. outside of my name being clearly linked to it. And it took any kind of compensation away. It's really painful, Scott. AI companies, producers, say they don't need to pay. And under the fair use doctrine, they can reproduce the image. How do you react to that? <laughs> With a multitude of emotions, Scott, I, I don't think that that you know theory will last. I don't. I just mm -hmm. don't see it lasting. Well, we, we we should explain. You're involved in a couple of lawsuits right now, aren't you? Yes. Yes, I am. One lawsuit, one class action lawsuit. One is all I can handle. <laughs> well, let, let me put it to you this way. Let me ask you, as an artist, how is what AI is doing different from what Andy Warhol did when he painted a Brillo box or a Campbell soup can? Yes. So it's a matter of scale. Um, for example, Generative AI, uh, some of the more, you know, larger data sets contain about 5.8 billion text and image data pairs. And within those, you know, massive data sets exist everything. And then you have users who are encouraged to generate imagery at a level that no human artist can ever compete. We're talking about hundreds, if not thousands, of generated imagery within like a day, maybe weeks, tops, and seconds. Who knows? It's it, mm -hmm. the technologies are getting better, and so yeah, it's it's totally different. As a talented artist, is there a part of you that is also a little dazzled by the possibility of, of these technologies, and could you use it to do something new and different? You know, it's hard to not see the stolen work of my peers, you know, mm -hmm. when I see these technologies. It's hard for me to see this as something that will be usable to me when I know it's already taken away jobs and opportunities. There might be a future where these models are trained correctly, right? Where Things are built in public domain, you know, data only, because that belongs to all of us. And any expansion upon that to be done via good, livable, 
you know, licensing, then maybe. But even at that level, to me personally, as an artist, I wouldn't use it. I don't think I would. I love painting. I love every step of the process, from the doodle to the sketch to the drawing to figuring out the light, the colors, the composition. All of that is what makes art brilliant and wonderful. And to outsource that process to a machine feels empty to me. Carla Ortiz, uh, fine artist, concept artist. Wowed people on screens, both big and little, with her work. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Scott. The vegan restaurant in New York City is the setting for a new novel. It's where the city's Dominican-American community often comes together, and in the book, it's run by two women from the Marte family. Family Lore is the debut novel for adults by Elizabeth Acevedo. She previously won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature. NPR's Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento has this profile. The cafeteria and family lore serves Dominican staples and fresh green juices, a perfect compromise for the neighborhood viejitos and millennials alike. Hola, me puede eh, un plato de el moro de guandule? As Acevedo and I sit down to lunch at a similar Dominican spot in the Columbia Heights neighborhood of D.C., she explains why she wanted to write about a restaurant, who it feeds, who comes through, who do you see, who leaves, um, what gossip exists when you hold a space that serves food specifically. The owner of the cafeteria is Yari, the youngest of the Marte family. Raised in New York City, but with strong ties to the Dominican Republic, she's a lot like Acevedo. The author grew up in Harlem where she started out rapping until an English teacher invited her to join an after-school poetry club. She fell in love. For folks who maybe have felt it difficult to occupy their bodies and take up space and demand attention, to have three minutes where that is the requirement is really powerful. I know I come from stolen gold, from cocoa, from sugarcane, the children of slaves and slave masters, a beautifully tragic mixture, a sancocho of erased history. That's her performing her piece Afro-Latina in 2015. After college, Acevedo became a middle school language arts teacher. You know, teaching is its own performance. Except with an audience that doesn't always want to be there. And her students were struggling in other ways. So many of my young people weren't at grade level, but they'd also not encountered literature that they felt reflected them. And so trying to meet some of those students where they were was really like a kickoff for, for my writing. Acevedo began writing young adult books. The poet X, her first novel about a Dominican-American teen finding her voice through poetry won a National Book Award. Now, with family lore, Acevedo turns her attention to adult readers. I think the way that this pushes forward her work and the growing body of Dominican-American literature is how deeply she writes into the interiors of her women characters. That's author Naima Coster, a colleague and friend of Acevedo who read an early draft of the novel. Family lore centers four sisters, Matilde, Flor, Pastora, and Camila, and their daughters. Elizabeth Acevedo says they grow older together, but the relationships do not get easier. What does it mean if these women really just had a different experience of their mother and how that different experience of their mother automatically will create a schism? Because now it's like, you don't remember her the way I remember her. And because of that, like, I can't trust you. 
There are infidelities, miscarriages, childhood love affairs, and therapeutic dance classes. Acevedo wanted to tell those stories in a nonlinear way. Sometimes you're in a memory, and then you're in a memory within that memory, right? In the way that I think you'll be telling a story, you're like, oh, wait, let me sidetrack real quick. She felt this format was more suited for adult readers. And writing for adults also allowed her to be candid about bodies. Here she reads from the book. The body knows us even when we do not know it. And the body says, I am meat, tender when struck, seizing when fired up, needing rest when removed from the heat. I am meat. The Marte women have quirky supernatural gifts. One sees and dreams how people will die. One can sense truth and lies. One dances like the rhythm stems from her own body. One has a special taste for sour limes. Author Naima Coster says it's still rare to see Afro-Dominican women as full, complicated characters the way Acevedo writes them. It feels major, the way that she writes about the ways that these women misunderstand each other, but still love each other. Acevedo says those themes will be in every book that she writes. It is family, it is silence, it is home and place and longing. Those are the questions and the themes that, that haunt me. Family lore reads like the feeling of getting older and no longer having moms and aunts lower their voices when you enter the room. Like finally being privy to what makes a family flawed and perfect. Isabella Gomez Sarmiento, NPR News. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public and from the listeners who support this NPR station. Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR on this Saturday morning. It's coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues. You'll get the story from WBUR's Martha Beevinger about crafters uniting to finish projects begun by people who can no longer do the work. It is 78 degrees in Boston, a high today around 90. Some showers and thunderstorms around today and tonight. Some of those storms could be severe. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly, beginning August 4th. FranklinParkZoo.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we gave the Southwest some advice in dealing with the record heat. Maybe, Phoenix, you should not have named your city after a bird most famous for bursting into flames. I'm Karen Chi, in for Peter Sagal. Join us for more chit-chat about the weather with our guest, actor-director Randall Park, on this week's news quiz from NPR. 
Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Russian missiles assault the historic city of Odessa often all night. Vadim Herbanovsky says people spend nights in basements hoping to make it through until morning. People are trying to help each other. Um, coffee is uh, definitely the most important product <laughs> in our ratio that we have now. An interview this hour, also Republican candidates for president debate in Iowa. The Women's World Cup's biggest round is Team USA stumbling and they're sticky, slimy, and insatiable. No, not another story about politicians. Hammerhead worms. First our newscast at Saturday, July 29, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Winsor Johnston. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin are meeting with their counterparts in Australia this week. Speaking at a press conference in Brisbane, Blinken said the U.S. is committed to strengthening ties with Australia and their priorities in the Indo-Pacific region. We're living in incredibly challenging times. That only underscores how vitally important it is for the United States to have this remarkable alliance, this remarkable friendship with uh, Australia. The talks in Australia are aimed at countering China's growing influence in the region. Beijing has imposed a series of trade barriers in recent years against Australian exports, including coal, wine, and seafood. In Alabama, voting rights advocates have filed former objections to the new map of congressional voting districts that was recently passed by the state's Republican-controlled legislature. NPR's Hansi Lowong reports the court filing is part of a redistricting fight that could help determine which party controls the U.S. House after next year's elections. Last week, Alabama's Republican-led legislature passed a redistricting plan with one congressional district where black Alabamians old enough to vote make up the majority and another that is about 40 percent black. Now a group of black voters and other Alabama voting rights advocates are arguing that the plan does not follow a federal court order to get in line with the Voting Rights Act by drawing two districts where black voters have a realistic opportunity to elect their preferred candidate. A hearing is scheduled for mid-August. If a panel of three judges rejects the legislature's latest redistricting plan, experts appointed by the court to draw a map are expected to step in. Anzi Luong, NPR News. The European Union says it's suspending financial support and cooperation on security with Niger. A senior diplomat says the decision, effective immediately, is in response to an ongoing military takeover in the West African nation. The Biden administration, meanwhile, is calling for the immediate restoration of democratic order, just days after the nation's democratically elected president was ousted. President Biden is kicking off a 10-day vacation at his beach home in Rehoboth, Delaware. NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports Biden will continue to get security briefings. 
White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters the president plans to spend next week at his vacation home in Rehoboth Beach. It's a seaside town not far from Washington, and Biden often stays there on weekends with his family. His week in his home state comes as Congress also leaves Washington for the August recess. When lawmakers return, they'll be trying to work out a deal to fund the government by a September 30th deadline. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A New Hampshire resident has been kidnapped in Haiti. WMUR reports that a staff member with the nonprofit El Roy Haiti was kidnapped from its campus near Port-au-Prince. The nonprofit's president, Jason Brown, says the organization is working with partners in Haiti to ensure the staffers return. This week, the U.S. State Department ordered non-emergency government personnel and family members to leave Haiti and cited a high risk of kidnapping. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is spending time in New England this weekend. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports the Republican presidential contender has stops planned in New Hampshire and on Cape Cod. DeSantis will be hosting a $3,300 per person fundraiser today in Ketuit. The village in Barnstable is about 20 miles from Martha's Vineyard. That's where DeSantis had more than four dozen unsuspecting migrants flown to from Texas last September. A Texas sheriff has since recommended criminal charges against DeSantis and other organizers of those flights. After learning about the Florida governor's planned visit this week, Democratic State Representative Dylan Fernandez of Falmouth blasted DeSantis in a tweet. He called DeSantis a coward for coming to the Cape, where many of those migrants now live, to, quote, beg for money for his failing campaign. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Fausto Menard. An 85-year-old pedestrian has died after being hit by an Amtrak train in Andover. The Essex County DA's office says the Andover resident had waited for a southbound train to pass and then was hit by a northbound train. The DA's office says the crossing lights and gates appeared to have been working. This is the second Amtrak train death in Massachusetts this year. The first occurred earlier this month in Sharon. It is 80 degrees in Boston. A heat advisory is in effect through this evening. A flood watch takes effect at 11 this morning. Some isolated showers this morning, then scattered showers and thunderstorms likely this afternoon and this evening. Some of the storms could be severe. A high today around 90 degrees. Tomorrow, a mostly sunny Sunday, less humid, and a high tomorrow around 80. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Joyce Foundation committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Former President Donald Trump is likely facing a third indictment, maybe a fourth, but that has not kept him off the campaign trail. He went to the annual Lincoln Dinner in Iowa last night where he and 12 other presidential candidates took turns on stage. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters was there and joins us. Good morning, Clay. Yeah, good morning. Uh, Mr. Trump hasn't spent nearly as much time in Iowa as some other candidates. Noteworthy that he was even there? Yeah, it was. And it's a high-profile public appearance at the same time he's facing mounting legal questions. And that's clearly on his mind as he went a little off script during his prepared remarks. And by the way, if I weren't running, I would have nobody coming after me. 
or if I was losing by a lot, I would have nobody coming after me. He said that, of course, just as new charges came this week in a federal case accusing him of illegally possessing classified documents. But in Iowa Friday, it was generally less about indictments and more about connecting with voters. Uh, The former president has been running here like he's already the nominee. He has not been appearing at these events that feature multiple presidential candidates before. And that's largely because he has to play by the rules like everyone else. Like last night, each address had to remain at just 10 minutes and Trump had to condense his typical long meandering speech into that packed format. So he focused on what he called the achievements of his first term in office from appointing justice to the Supreme Court that overturned Roe v. Wade, to touting the farm subsidies he doled out during his administration. And that's how he's trying to remind Republican Iowa voters that he's their man in 2024. Uh, He continues to enjoy a lot of support here from Republicans. Clay, what was audience reaction like to Donald Trump and to other candidates? So early on, you could kind of hear the clinking of silverware on plates of chicken and mashed potatoes in the ballroom. Over a thousand people were there. So it was dinner and people were clearly focused on that part of the night. But politics was also on the menu. Uh, Mindy Ginger was there to see Trump and said she'd listen to what the others had to say, but she wants Trump back in office and was visibly frustrated when she was talking to me about the mounting indictments against the former president. I'm so sick and tired of all the crap they're doing to him right now. There is absolutely nobody, nobody that could go through with what he's gone through and his family. Everybody else would have buckled like a cheap suit. So Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, seen as Trump's main rival in this race, went early on in the program and stuck to his normal stump speech, talking about laws he's passed in Florida, like an abortion ban, for an example. Uh, Most of the candidates are still introducing themselves, like former Texas Congressman Will Hurd. He's far from a household name. And He was not met with fanfare when he had this to say from the stage. Donald Trump is not running for president to represent the people that voted for him in 2016 and 2020. Donald Trump is running to stay out of prison. And if we elect... I know, I know. And Scott, you can hear the booing there. He said nominating Trump guarantees another term for Biden. And that was one of the only, at least the most direct attacks on Trump the whole night. The other candidates, including DeSantis, avoided calling Trump out by name. And Trump went last in these back-to-back speeches. And that meant he had the final word for the night. Clay, a new NPR poll shows that maybe the indictments, maybe other factors uh, add up to the fact that the number of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents who say they believe Donald Trump has done nothing wrong dropped nine points in the last month. Uh, Does this give any of the other candidates what they see as a path to the nomination? Right. Well, afterwards, there were these meet and greets with the candidates so people could shake hands and take selfies with them. And I use that as an opportunity to take kind of an informal straw poll. So bear with me. And and, and judging from the number of people waiting to meet the candidates, Trump's doing just fine. Uh, There were also lines to see DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy, while not very many people were sticking around by comparison to see former Vice President Mike Pence. So anecdotally, you know, Trump still has Iowa support, uh, but he's still going to have to campaign here. Iowans reward politicians for showing up in all 99 counties, and most everyone on that stage vowed to spend a lot of time here between now and January 15th. That's when, of course, the first in the nation Iowa caucuses will take place. And Clay, how was the chicken? (laughs) I I didn't have any of the chicken. I, I ate afterwards. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Scott. Odessa. 
a famed city along the Black Sea, has been shaken by wave after wave of Russian missile and drone strikes nearly every night for several days. This is after Russia withdrew from a deal that had protected the critical flow of Ukrainian grain through the Black Sea to markets around the world. We've reached a lifelong resident of Odessa, Vadim Herbanovsky. Mr. Herbanovsky, thank you for being with us. Greetings to everyone. I'm really glad to be here with you. What's it like in Odessa now? What's it been like this week? It's been tough, especially for the last two weeks, because we had a huge amount of rockets from the Russian side, especially during the night. So if you pick up any person from Odessa and ask about their state, they will be very, very sleepy and tired emotionally and physically because uh, still we are doing our best to save the economy to work. So, you know, uh, during the night, you're sitting in a shelter, if you have a shelter and praying not to be dead until the morning because of missile strikes. And at the same time in the morning, you wake up and go to do your best in this life. How have you been living? How have you been eating? We are all trying to survive in these circumstances, you know. Um, it really works on the motivation to help our guys who are militaries. And we all know that they are in a way worse condition and they're living their lives on the front line. Uh, it doesn't help much when you don't sleep for like three or four days in a row, but still you keep this in mind and trying to do your best for your families. I know that a lot of people have changed the place of living to the other cities on the western part of Ukraine, which is a bit safer. let's say. At least they are not suffering from the rocket strikes as much as we are. I know that yeah, a few rockets uh, were launched on Lviv, so they are not in a 100% safety place too, but still. People are trying to help each other. Um, coffee is uh, definitely the most important product <laughs> in our ratio that we have now. Coffee to stay awake. To stay alive, I would say. Yeah. When you go out during the day, if you do, what's the destruction you see? When you're walking out uh, on the city center, you know, it looks very dehumanizing, I would say. A lot of damaged buildings, people who are living without windows. Uh, at this moment, outside is very rainy. And uh, to be honest, I don't know how do they manage the situation. Um, on the next day, when rockets strike the church, the cathedral one. The, this is the Transfiguration Cathedral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole city was there to help fix the damages, to save whatever we can save. Everyone is trying to help the person from the city, like uh, providing the shelter for at least a few days to stay, providing the food, and the, some hygiene kits or anything with that. But it's scary because you see buildings and the areas that you have been living the whole your life where you've been playing as a child, being totally destroyed, and you understand that this war has no human face from their side. They don't care. And if you will open any Telegram chat or Facebook page where they post the information about the missile strikes being damaged in Odessa, you will see a huge amount of people who are laughing and being 
sarcastic and having fun because of us suffering, because they don't think that we are humans. May I ask, uh, Mr. Herbinovsky, do you know anyone who's died? A friend of mine just stays safe. She, uh, she ran on the corner of her flat a few seconds before the explosion and the whole flat was damaged from the inside because of windows and the explosion wave of the rockets. Um, not my friends, but the parents of my friends had died during the last days. And this is a huge loss for the people. They were just staying in their houses and the rocket launched directly to the house. Forgive me for not knowing, do you have a family? Um, my family is not here at this moment, only my father. They are in other country because I asked them to go away since the war started. And I'm here doing my best to help the people on the occupied territories because I also work as executive director of the charity. If you could ever see the disaster they made on those territories, this is like the most horrifying thing that I have ever seen in my life. Would you like the world to know about Odessa right now and the people there? I have a feeling that a lot of people from other countries who are not deeply involved in the situation in Ukraine, they may be tired of news about us. And I understand that if you hear from day to day the news about country being suffering from the attack of another country, and you don't have any relatives here or friends here, at some point you may feel that, why are we still participating in this? But even in the worst case scenario, if I won't survive, my friends won't survive, our people from Ukraine won't survive, nothing will stop here. We're just the front line of the normal civilized world. Vadim Herbanovsky in Odessa, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about five minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get the story from Oklahoma, where women who are soon to be released from prison are getting help with the transition by focusing on the arts. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition Saturday. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. At the beach, in the park, on a walk, or at your desk, wherever the summer takes you, the WBUR app makes it easy to tap and to listen. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download the WBUR app today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, committed to utilizing sustainable practices and partnering with local artisanal craftspeople in sourcing their furniture. CircleFurniture.com and Symbiosis Learning Center in Milton, now enrolling for the upcoming year, a nurturing and mindful environment for middle and high school students. SymbiosisLearningCenter.com. 
I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin are continuing talks in Australia this weekend. They've been taking part in meetings aimed at countering threats from China in the Indo-Pacific region. Search and rescue operations are underway for four crew members after an Australian Army helicopter went missing today. Officials say the chopper went down during joint military exercises with the United States. A powerful typhoon has weakened into a tropical storm after battering parts of southern China. The storm knocked out power to more than a million people in the region, forcing hundreds of thousands to evacuate. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is we. <clears throat> this is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The coup in Niger this week has thrown that West African nation into turmoil. Members of the military there announced they had seized power and detained President Mohamed Bazoum. The group imposed a curfew that closed the country's borders and said the constitution had been dissolved. A general who had led Bazoum's own presidential guard declared he is the country's new leader. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that American aid to Niger may be in, quote, jeopardy. Ambassador Rama Yad is senior director of the Atlantic Council's Africa Center. She previously served as France's ambassador to UNESCO. Ambassador Yad, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. President Bazoum was elected two years ago in what I understand was the country's first peaceful democratic transfer of power since it gained independence from France. What led to this coup, do you know? I think that we cannot talk about the popularity of, of the soldiers. That's not the case. People are questioning the way the struggle against the jihadist movements are led and I think it's very important to take into consideration that point. The weakness of governments is the key element that explains this coup, because it's not the first one. In three years, Niger is the third country in West Africa to experience a coup d'etat. So that means that these coups are seem very easy and very quick. So your assessment of the situation would be that the military was concerned about the lack of security in the country and citizens were concerned too? Yeah, and bad governance also. The war in this area has been lasting for for two decades now. And many civilian populations consider that the governments have not been very efficient. And they are always suffering from the terrorist attacks, but also from the weakness of the state. There's no public services in these areas, no security, no justice, and all things considered, when a coup happens, populations seem to applaud because they consider that maybe they could do better. Ambassador, what could this coup mean for the people of Niger? The unknown, 
because uh, nothing can can tell us if they are supported by by the civilians. A part of the population uh, demonstrated in the streets to express support, but it does not mean that the vast majority of the country is be, is behind them. Now the question is for the Western countries: Should they still continue to support Niger with this new power, or should they withdraw their support? Would that, in theory, tilt the new rulers of Niger to strike up a closer relationship with Russia? Yeah, that's a good question. Russia is is really motivated to prove that it is not isolated on the global stage. And Russia has been able to use a part of the African continent as a rare base to contain Western economic sanctions and rebuild its forces, uh, thanks to um, the predatory uh, companies of Wagner. And they are established in Central African Republic, in Mali, whose uh, gold, diamonds, sugar serve as the good way to, to restore forces when they are involved in the Ukrainian um, ground. Remind us why Niger is so strategically important to the United States and France, for that matter. Basum was the last strongman of the Sahel, supported by uh, the Westerns in his fight against terrorism, first, and resistance to Russia, second. That's a lot for one man. On the economic front, it's also important to understand that Niger is a, is a very rich country where you can find a lot of resources very important for energy power. On the military front, Niger has had a very important role in the counterterrorism strategy led by France and the U.S., but also by the Europeans. Ambassador Yad, what would be the best state of affairs for Niger at this point? Uh, at this point, I mean, next days will be very informative. You know, I think the reactions of the populations will be key. For the time being, we have seen a lot of demonstrations supporting or demonstrators supporting Bazoum, the legal government, but also the new junta, without knowing what will be the final political outcome. What's going on here in the Sahel will have an impact not only on Africa, but also, I think, uh, in Ukraine, Europe, and on the global stage. Ambassador Ramayad is Senior Director of the Atlantic Council's Africa Center and Senior Fellow for the Europe Center. Thank you so much for being with us, Ambassador. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, women who will soon be released from prison are getting help from a program they're trying to ease their transition. It uses art and poetry as a way to increase confidence. Here's Elizabeth Caldwell with member station KWGS. Actually, it was my daughter. <laughs> in an art gallery in downtown Tulsa, about 20 women are clasping hands as they stand in a circle. I have a voice. I have a voice. I have hope. I have hope. I have the power to change. I have the power to change. Most of the women are inmates at nearby Eddie Warrior Correctional Center, which they will leave for good soon. Today, they're on a field trip to see art made by other prisoners. Being in a gallery is meant to communicate to these women that they can succeed, says Ellen Stackable. She's with the nonprofit Poetic Justice that organized the trip. 
that's so elevated here, that they're in a space that isn't just sort of a throwaway or a subpar space. This is like a classy gallery, and they came and got to see it. Poetic Justice helps women prisoners in Oklahoma and California write, paint, and draw with a goal of fostering self-esteem. Melanie Toddy, who worked for Poetic Justice right after being released from prison 15 months ago, says she was initially worried she'd be judged. I talk stupid, like I talk like inmate, and I did not feel any judgment in Poetic Justice. And we talked about deep issues and like things after the women tour the gallery, they gather to listen to a panel about how to live after incarceration. Toddy tells them it's been difficult confronting so much lost time. I feel like I'm behind because, you know, I was in prison for 17 years and I don't have a career, I don't have a house, I don't have all this stuff. So I'm like, I gotta save all my money because I'm old and I don't even have anything. <laughs> so I save all my money, except for I buy shoes. And then um, I just save it. Then the women write letters to themselves that are meant to be read on the day they'll be released. Volunteer Hannah Al-Jabouri gives the prisoners instructions for their letters. They need to be free of negative judgment. A lot of times when we talk to ourselves, you know, there's always like a little shameful voice sometimes in the back of our head that kind of can say harsh things to ourselves and kind of present us with some of that shame. I don't want that voice to be the voice that writes this letter. After 10 minutes, they have the option to share their letters. Amy Smith reads hers. From this day on, we will not be defined by our failures, but only by our ability to overcome. We will not go back to the comfort of addiction. Life is what we make of it. The sky's the limit. After the women share their letters, it's time to get on the bus and go back to prison. Al Jabouri urges them to remember what was good here today. You all are incredible. You all are amazing. And I know I don't know any of you like super personally, but just from the way that you carry yourselves and the way that you were in this space with us today, I can tell that. And from the words that we got to hear, uh, they definitely speak volumes. It's a sliver of encouragement in a state that has one of the highest rates of women in prison in the U.S. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Caldwell in Tulsa. And now it's time for sports. Women's World Cup. The first place Baltimore Orioles. That's not a typo. And MLB trade deadline. GMs have their eyes on Chicago like kids in a candy store. Michelle Steele of ESPN joins us. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Scott. Let me ask you about the World, Women's World Cup. Team USA won their first match against Vietnam, but the coach said they should have scored more. They tied. They're second against the Dutch. They face Portugal on Tuesday. Uh, are they in a tight spot? Yeah, well, you know, the margin for error here, Scott, is tighter uh, than what the Americans are used to. Now, with a win or a draw against Portugal, they advance. They are through to the knockout round. But the U.S. just needs to make sure they do not lose this game to Portugal or else they could be out shockingly early. Now, that is not likely, right? Portugal is a less talented team. But this has been a weird World Cup. Uh, a lot of stuff has happened already that hasn't been expected. This is not going to be a pushover game. From a mental standpoint, think about it. Portugal is going to be the underdog here. They're going to be playing loose like they have nothing yeah. to lose. 
and the Americans are going to be playing with the burden of expectation. You are right. This team needs goals. They've had a total of 46 shots on goal for the first two games, but they only scored four times. Scott, they got to be more efficient than that. What are the games you got an eye on in this stage? Yeah, we've got some very high stakes games involving the hosts, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand, Switzerland. Now it's win and you're in for both the Aussies and the Kiwis. And, you know, you always root for the host to do well because it just adds to the atmosphere and the excitement for the whole mm -hmm. tournament. So there's going to be a lot of butterflies down under, Scott, for the next couple of days <laughs> with these teams. Uh, but the Australian team, the Matildas, as they're known, they get the best player in the world back, Sam yeah. Kerr. She just told reporters this morning she's going to definitely be back for the match against Canada after suffering a calf injury. So, Scott, it's all hands and legs and calves <laughs> on deck. All right. Uh, baseball. Uh, Orioles, Yankees began a three-game series this weekend. Last night, the O's won their, the first game, 1-0. Anthony Santander had a great catch mm. in right field and a walk-off home run. The O's are back, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Who doesn't love the smell of Old Bay in the morning? Uh, yeah, you know, it's been a rough few decades for the Baltimore <laughs> Orioles. 40, yeah, uh, 40 years, yeah. yeah. And, and the last few years haven't been great either. I mean, when you look at the last five seasons, they've lost over 100 games in three of them. But the team is now in first place in a really tough division, the AL East. You know, this O's team, they're young. They're really fun to watch. They they have a guy named Mr. Splash in the outfield who hoses down fans when whenever the O's get an extra base hit. You got to give credit to GM Mike Elias, who's helped engineer this turnaround. Now, I looked it up. Baseball Reference gives the Orioles a 4.9% chance to win the World Series. You said it. They haven't done that in 40 years. That's actually the third best odds in the American League ah. right now after, yeah, after Texas and Tampa Bay. So, you know, they're feeling good about themselves. They think they can make a deep playoff run here with who they've got on the roster, but they are signaling they're looking for some pitching help at the trade deadline, which is right around the corner on Tuesday. Yeah, and, and let's just note in the seconds we have left, the, the Angels have uh, unloaded the vault to try and keep hold of Shohei Otani, <laughs> yeah. haven't they? Yeah, yeah, and that was the first big blockbuster domino. They looked around baseball, Scott, and the Angels thought, you know, maybe we're better off with the best player in a generation, <laughs> if not yeah. all time. They are keeping them. They're adding players. And you know what? This trade deadline really goes through Chicago. Yep. Uh, the White Sox in the middle of a fire sale. They just traded away three more guys from their pitching staff last night. Now, here's what you'll be interested in. The Cubs, the consensus was they were going to be joining the Sox and selling at the deadline, but they've been on a little bit of a streak lately. So they're going to yeah. decide at the 11th it, hour here which direction they go in. Michelle Steele, thanks so much. Sure. Fourth of July has come and gone. But Mother You'll Nature see, is still lighting fireworks. You'll see fireballs of different colors that leave a uh, trail in the sky for up to a minute or so. And uh, it's very cool. The meteor shower will reach peak viewing later today. And all things considered, a few tips on how to watch it, where to watch it. You can tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name.
You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. A story now about a hand-hooked rug, the woman who couldn't complete it, and the stranger who stepped in to help. They were matched through a program that pairs volunteer crafters with projects left unfinished when health became an issue or somebody passes away. Martha Biebinger of member station WBUR reports. The small Turkish-style rug is a bright mix of red and blue geometric shapes on a gold background. Donna Savastio spent more than 100 hours following the pattern stamped on linen, using a hook to pull strips of wool through the backing, making loop after loop. You can sit here for hours if you want to. I mean, it's like, wow, but I love it. Savastio started this rug around the same time she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. It maps the progression of her disease. In one section, delicate red scrolls expand to become solid blocks of red. John Shambroon fingers tangled loops along the navy blue border where his wife stopped. She started to get a little bit off the rails and having difficulty pulling the threads up through the top. That was about a year ago. It looked like Sevastio's rug would never be finished. Then Jan Rowetter arrives at the front door. Corey, nice to meet you. Rowetter is a rug hooker the couple has never met. I've recently lost both my parents and my mom to dementia. She's here to collect and complete Sevastio's rug. It's something that I would have loved to have been able to do for my mom. And so that's why I'm here. Oh, oh, this is is a godsend. Rowetter moves around Sevastio's craft room, gathering the supplies she'll need. There's one lingering question how to mark the spots where Sevastio's handiwork stops and Rowetter's will begin. The two women open Sevastio's closet in search of options. I'm picking for the clothes here. Okay, here we go. A silky scarf okay. with thin tassels looks promising to Rowetter. Instead of cutting it up, I could um, I could just take some tassels. Rowetter bundles up the rug and heads home. I will be in touch. Thank you, Sarah. Rowetter and Sevastio found each other through loose ends. The program has matched more than 600 unfinished blankets, sweaters, socks, rugs, and doilies since launching 10 months ago. It's the brainchild of two longtime friends and knitters, Macy Kaplan and Jen Simonic, who were both asked last summer to complete projects for friends who'd lost moms. Sometimes you look around and think, this must be happening somewhere in the world. And, and when it's not, you're like, oh, it has to. Now, says Simonic, Loose Ends has 9,100 volunteers in 42 countries. Kaplan and Simonic spend hours of their free time every day filtering data on spreadsheets, looking for the closest person to a submitted project with the right skills and interests. There are some people who are like, give me an 80-foot blanket. And there's some people that like, I don't do anything bigger than a sock. So it's me and Macy looking at spreadsheets till we go blind. Here's Macy Kaplan. Watching strangers take care of each other has been really wonderful. A month after picking up the rug, Jan Rowetter is back with a gift-wrapped package. Oh my God, it's gorgeous! Three silvery threads, slim tassels snipped from Donna Savastio's scarf, mark spots in the rug's blue border where Rowetter took over. Every loop was with love and, and thinking of you, thinking of my mom and, and whatnot. John Shambroon looks at Rowetter, shaking his head in wonder. This, this is just a purely good thing especially these days. These days, it's pretty nice to be able to do something pure, pure of the heart, right? For NPR News, I'm Martha Biebinger in Boston. (laughs) 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The NAACP National Convention continues in Boston today, with Vice President Kamala Harris taking the stage as the headliner. She'll take part in what's billed as an armchair conversation with the NAACP's board chair. The country's oldest and largest civil rights organization last held its convention in Boston in 1982. The 36th annual Lowell Folk Festival is underway. The free event in downtown Lowell is one of the oldest folk festivals in the country. Maggie Holtzberg of the Massachusetts Cultural Council says, along with music and dance and food, the weekend event features craft demonstrations. There's everything from Chinese paper cutting to Dominican carnival tradition, mass making, ship wheel, steering wheel making. We have, there's Wampanoag and Dakota adornment and Nipmuc um, craft traditions. For a complete schedule, visit the Lowell Folk Festival website. It is 80 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we gave the Southwest some advice in dealing with the record heat. Maybe, Phoenix, you should not have named your city after a bird most famous for bursting into flames. I'm Karen Chi, in for Peter Sagal. Join us for more chit-chat about the weather with our guest, actor-director Randall Park, on this week's news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Elizabeth Bunny Glenn came to adolescence in a place where the beach smelled like oil and the oil smelled like money. Azerbaijan, after the Soviet Union had come apart, global superpowers poured into old Soviet satellites along the Caspian Sea for oil rights and pipeline access. Bunny is the daughter of a diplomat, wry, skeptical, a teenager who often seems more interested in soap operas. How and why does she come to make a life in ways she once disdained in big oil? Mobility is the new novel from Lydia Kiesling, author of the acclaimed novel The Golden State, and she joins us from Portland, Oregon. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Scott. I'm thrilled. You're from a Foreign Service family, too, aren't you? I am, yes. I grew up in the Foreign Service, much like Bunny Glenn did. Well, okay, you preempt my uh, next half question. <laughs> Where are the resemblances between you and Bunny? So, you know, I think Bunny and I share some of the same DNA. Um, our life stories are a little different, but definitely the experience of being a teenager in a place that is unfamiliar to you, surrounded by adult business and um, feeling a little blasé about it. <laughs> 
Bunny is much more interested in soap operas than the the kind of drama unfolding around her, isn't she? Or is she posing in a sense? She doesn't want to. She's a teen after all. Does she not want to seem too interested? Well, I think, you know, Bunny's smarter than she gives herself credit for. But yes, she spends a lot of time watching soap operas, uh, reading magazines like Cosmopolitan, scheming about things that she wants to buy, but also watching the people around her and noticing the people around her. And I think teenage girls are much more observant than most people give them credit for. Um, they're a little bit under <laughs> underappreciated. And so Bunny does have these observational powers that I try to sort of exploit in the novel. Tell me a little bit about the father in this in this novel. And we should note that your father, John Brady Kiesling, was a diplomat who notably resigned over the invasion of Iraq. Yes, uh, that is true. So his career and experience was incredibly formative for me and certainly feeds into the material of the novel. I gave uh, Bunny's father a slightly different professional track, and he is in a place at a time when the primary sort of U.S. goal um, in Azerbaijan was directing and ensuring pipeline access. So this was the time when sort of foreign powers were looking at the way that oil got to different markets from its sources and really doing a lot of horse trading and scheming about how they could make sure the pipelines went through countries that were amenable to U.S. interests. And so that's a different experience than the experience of my father in the Foreign Service. But certainly the writing is informed by what I kind of saw of those years in the in the 90s and early 2000s. So how does somebody who you think knows the seamy underside of the oil business as well as Bunny become Elizabeth, the young woman who goes into the oil industry? You know, Bunny's family is from oil country. Um, she's from Texas, the Golden Triangle area. So, you know, oil is part of her background in the novel, um, although in ways she doesn't really think about. And it is intentionally pretty accidental that she does end up working for a quote unquote small family owned oil company. But over time, you know, she looks around and says, well, this is the ladder I'm on, so I'm going to try and climb it. And she ends up using her own sort of powers of observation and uh, ability to construct narratives to do storytelling for the oil and gas industry. She tells herself she's making a breakthrough for women in the corridors of power, doesn't she? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's something really important about the oil and gas industry, the energy industry, is that, you know, many industries are male dominated, but oil and gas um, really stands out as being especially male dominated. And, you know, women have worked very hard, you know, at all levels to make a space for themselves in that industry. So that is a way that Bunny sort of says, okay, well, there is a struggle here that I can be part of. Um, but that also means for her, sort of willfully like putting on some blinkers about the broader struggle of how oil and gas should or should not fit into our current world. What was it like for you to spend time in Bunny's mind and heart? It was interesting. So there were things that Bunny and I had in common. I'd say, you know, as she progressed into adulthood, she and I did deviate more and more. And there were times when, you know, I'd be writing her and saying, okay, well, now, Bunny, you don't have to do this. But, you know, as a novelist, the narrative challenge was, you know, having a character who sort of maintains this state of sort of willful obliviousness in a lot of ways. Because if Bunny was going to suddenly wake up and say, no, I'm going to now, you know, crusade for climate justice, 
that's what I hope people will do in real life. But um, this is a novel and I was sort of interested in looking at complicity in sort of a longer scale. And um, so, yes, that was definitely a challenging experience. It struck me as I turned over the last page, this is a particularly um, appropriate time for your novel to come out this summer with unprecedented heat. Yes. You know, I live in Portland, Oregon, and two years ago we had the Pacific Northwest heat wave. It was 116 degrees uh, here in the foggy Northwest, and that was a very formative experience as I was in the writing process of this book, was just seeing what heat looks like in a place that is completely unprepared for it. Yeah. Mobility, the title, suggests Bunny Elizabeth's mobility, I guess, but also kind of underscores what's got us into trouble, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I have to thank my wonderful agent, Claudia Ballard, for that title. So, you know, there's the obvious kind of echo of ExxonMobil. Um, then, you know, there is, as you as you say, Bunny's mobility, what her class and race and demographic allows her to do. And then mobility, yeah, I mean, it's a way to talk about how fossil fuels move through our world, whether on tankers, through pipelines. Um, and then also they enable a kind of mobility in the form of obviously cars, planes. So I think it's a really kind of suggestive word that works very well um, in thinking about the, the ways that fossil fuels are kind of intimately tied up in life. Lydia Keesley in her new novel, Mobility. Thank you so much for being with us. It was truly a pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Michael Raup is a bug guy. I try to demystify the lives of invertebrates, particularly insects. He's Professor Emeritus in the Department of Etymology at the University of Maryland. For a bug guy, he's recently had a wormy time. Even his current Zoom background is a picture of a striped, slithery invertebrate with a shovel-shaped head. In other words, not B.J. Lederman, who writes our theme music. Professor Rapp describes this being as looking like a whole wheat noodle. This is bipallium. This is a hammerhead worm, and that's its hammerhead right there. These are some of the creepiest creatures on the planet. These are like tiny nightmares in your landscape. Bipallium, Latin for two shovels, is a type of flatworm, a pretty disagreeable group of worms in the estimation of the professor. Many of these are internal parasites of humans and other organisms. You know, I saw liver flukes in the slaughterhouses in New Jersey. We visited those in our pathology class, and I've seen tapeworms, you know, coming out of the rear end of a cat and things like that. Despite such vast experience, Professor Raup had never seen a hammerhead until his friend. Washington Post reporter Kevin Ambrose found one in his backyard, or more accurately, around Kevin Ambrose's little dog, Peanut. Apparently, Peanut went out one morning when the hammerhead worms were moving from one part of the property to another part of the property across the driveway. Unfortunately, Peanut stepped on one of the hammerhead worms and uh, it became entangled on her leg. Ambrose emailed Raup, hey. Do you know anything about hammerhead worms? The bug guy grabs his Tupperware and headed right over. These hammerhead worms propel themselves across the surface of a lawn or a driveway with something called the creeping sole. That's S-O-L-E, as in the bottom of a shoe. The creeping sole 
is a series of small cilia or hairs on the undersurface of the worm that help it glide across the surface. Once they find their prey, they begin to secrete very vast amounts of sticky, sticky slime or mucus. This entangles their prey. Once the prey has become entangled, they will also secrete a very potent toxin called tetrodotoxin, which is the same toxin that's found in the puffer fish. This will paralyze the muscles of its prey. Don't worry, Peanut got a bath and she's fine. What makes hammerhead worms especially unpleasant, apart from the fact that their mouth is also their anus, and if you cut them in half, they will regenerate. Okay, okay, a lot of things make them unpleasant, but what's really alarming is that these worms are an invasive species. What classifies something as invasive is, is it causing more harm than good? That's Ashley Morgan Olvera, the research and education director for the Texas Invasive Species Institute. She says the hammerhead worm causes harm by eating local earthworms. If you think about, you know, honeybees being vital and the chain reaction on why we need to protect our honeybees, earthworms are necessary as well. So if we had a flatworm come in and if we left them unattended, if we just let them go and eat all the earthworms that they wanted, we could have serious crop and food issues. Morgan Olvera says the hammerhead worm likely hitched a ride over to the U.S. in the early 1900s when they were accidentally imported with plants. Now, they thrive from Pennsylvania to Hawaii. So what should you do if you come across a hammerhead? She says the neurotoxin isn't especially dangerous, but you ought to wash your hands if you touch the worm, and you should definitely dispose of the worm. They're really sensitive to vinegar spray. So if you see them in your yard, you can just spray them with vinegar and they will dissolve. You don't have to worry about touching them. But if you are removing them, it's important to just seal a container, whether it's a bag or a jar, just something to ensure that they're really getting disposed of. You can also salt them. Huh. Salt and vinegar, a vinaigrette in your garden. Ashley Morgan Olvera of the Texas Invasive Species Institute says... She understands why the hammerhead worm can seem a little mm, grisly to people who don't get paid to look at them, but she says she's heartened by something hammerheads cannot do. I would say I'd be more weirded out with roaches and, and things like that. There's something calming about something that can't fly, right? The hammerhead flatworm can't fly, so that's comforting. But she did tell us there is such a thing as a jumping worm. Super problematic. That one's... That one's a problem. Wait, I think I just heard one. Oh, now let's sample some summer in Taiwan. Defining moment of the season on the eastern side of the island is a three-day extravaganza celebrated by the indigenous communities there. NPR's Emily Fang takes us along for a visit. This is the sound of the Fengmianji, or Harvest Festival, each July. Each of Taiwan's 16 recognized indigenous groups has some version of the summer celebrations. And what's striking in recent years is the number of young indigenous people who take time off work to join in. 
Like Yakubayu, a member of the Amis people in Taiwan. A lot of people forgot their indigenous cultures. It's such a shame that many young indigenous people don't really place importance on their tribal affiliations. Which is why he made it a point to come. Taiwan's indigenous people now only number about 2.5% of the total population. Their numbers and culture diluted as waves of ethnic Chinese immigration came to the island over the centuries. But as Taiwan democratized, the island's indigenous communities have finally gotten more official recognition and public acceptance. And they have an outsized impact on mainstream culture, music, and the arts here. Every harvest festival is so important because it lets young indigenous people return to their tribal lands and connect with their roots. For Wu Jingwu, attending the Feng Yanzi this year was special. She just moved back home to Taiwan after years of living abroad, and she was excited to take part in the Mali Koda, a dance that for younger Amis members would normally last overnight for as long as three days. Through dance, we express our happiness. We join hands to show our friendship, and we stomp the ground to show the connection between the heavens and the earth and to ask the gods to come down to us. And so on, until exhausted by dance and perhaps more than a little buzz by rice wine, the individual melts into the collective, renewing strong group bonds among each age group in the tribe. And also, it's just a good time. She make you happy, make you crazy. As the night goes on, the dancing circle gets bigger and bigger. Soon, everyone is dancing, holding hands with strangers and kicking their feet in the malikota. <laughs> Among them is an Amis Ama, or auntie, dancing away in the thick of the action. I'm so happy, she shouts. I ask her if this year's Feng Yanji is different than the celebrations she partook in as a child. They're so different, she says. Now, indigenous people are back at the center of these holidays. She means this figuratively and literally. She points to the center stage, where more amused people in their red and white ceremonial clothes are performing. Taiwan's indigenous people are no longer on the periphery, she says. Now everyone is looking to us. Emily Fang, NPR News, Hualien, Taiwan. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being along with us today. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from hintwater.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 10 o'clock, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And you'll get more Weekend Edition tomorrow here on 90.9 WBUR. Two cars, five kids, four adults, one cooler, and two shopping bags of snacks, all bound for Wellfleet to watch the Barbie movie at a drive-in. That's tomorrow morning on Weekend Edition Sunday. Join the Radio Boston team Wednesday at City Space for an evening exploring comic book culture. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting As We Rise, photography from the Black Atlantic. On view now. More at PEM.org. Diving over 100 meters underwater with no air tank for sport. It's only when you put yourself in a position that you discover what you're capable of. And this is something that freedivers discovered they were capable of. I'm Scott Detrow. Tune into our conversation with film director Laura McGann about her new documentary, The Deepest Breath, on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.